Thank you, Rob. Well, it really is great to see you. If you are new to the church, Rob mentioned life groups. Just to unpack that a little bit, you will hear more about those next week. But um, Sunday morning's great. And we love being together on a Sunday morning, meeting with God, spending time together. But as you'll know, even over a cup of coffee uh, that's been well prepared and a nice piece of cake that's ready for you, it's still difficult to say more than to say hi or to lots of people. It's still difficult to go deeper than that. And so we've got groups that meet midweek called life groups, which are a great way of getting to know people more, but also a great way of growing in God more. Because one of the things we're committed to is growing together in our faith. And if you want to know more about what it means to be a Christian, more about what it means to, f- to follow Jesus and, and to grow in your faith, then there are great ways of doing that. So as Rob said, more details next week. Some of you, like me, were, will have been born in the 70s. Some of you, your parents and your grandparents will have told you about the 70s um, and what it was like to be alive then. Um, But I was born in the 70s. And uh, one thing I remember about the 70s is that cars were rubbish. Uh, Some of you may agree. Some of you may have come from families where you just had the best cars ever. Our family, we had rubbish cars consistently. Uh, My mum had uh, a car when I was a teenager when um, we, we lived near Exeter at the time and about eight miles outside of Exeter, but the car had a particular problem, and she'd booked it for some reason into a garage in Exeter to be looked at, and uh, eight miles away. But every time you slowed down a lot, the car would stop, and it had to be bump-started. Now, if you've ever been to Exeter, it has a ring road with lots of roundabouts on it. I was the only passenger in the car, so you can imagine what my role was as we pulled up to every roundabout, and I got out and pushed the car to get it started around every roundabout on the ring road round Exeter. Mum had another car, which for some reason she was convinced if we sang Christian songs, it would get up the hills. (laughs) Because without it, she wasn't quite sure it would make it. Dad had a car once, which... um, had been his pride and joy. It was a Ford Cortina gear. Now, for those of you who don't know the Ford Cortina gear, the gear was the top of the range. For the gear badge, you got a little badge on the side windows at the back, and you got walnut trim on the inside. Yeah, windows that wound down as well. It's amazing. Now, he had a car for quite a while, uh, to the point that he described it in the end as being two-tone, blue and rust. And uh, bits fell off it, and he kept the car going to the point that when the ignition stopped working, he took a part off. And you ended up, you you still opened the car with a key, but you turned the ignition with a screwdriver in the end. So to start the car, you actually started it with a screwdriver. Fabulous stuff. The one story, I'm I'm getting to a particular point. Uh, There's another story. We had a car, which my dad had, which caught fire on the drive. Fire brigade came. That's a story for another day. Um, Hilarious story. Um, but one I was particularly thinking of as I thought of this message was uh, one that my mum had once. And it's just, I think the car was probably okay, but it's one of those times when the fuel gauge was, was quite low. And so we were heading on purpose for the petrol station, but we didn't quite make it. And we suffered the indignity of pushing, I pushed the car again, probably with, with her, but pushing the car onto the forecourt, up to the pump, just to get there to fill up. Now, not too embarrassing, but a little bit undignified. And that probably could happen still today, but cars generally in the 70s were rubbish. Um, But some of you may feel a little bit like that car pulling into the petrol station today. 
where you're running on fumes. And you get to the end of a, a, a week like we've just had, and you're thinking maybe it's bank holiday tomorrow, and I've just about got enough to keep going, and I'm not sure I have, and oh, I've just, I've been living on empty. I've run out. I've got nothing left. I've got nothing left to give, and, and I think many people live like that because our lives feel really busy, don't they? We rush around, and, and that's despite having lots of labor-saving devices these days. We don't write letters anymore. Maybe some of you do, but not often. We write emails these days. And, and in fact, to check emails, you pull a gadget out of your phone, which is out your pocket, which is effectively a computer, and you look at it, and you check your emails, and you keep up to date with people like that. You don't walk to pick up the phone anymore. Back in the 70s, you, if the phone rang, you had to go and get it. And you couldn't take it with you because it was attached via a curly cord. And if you wanted to speak to somebody privately, you had to sit and, in the hallway or take it just outside the house and, or go to a phone box. Some of you are old enough to remember phone boxes being a thing that we did. These days, I can watch TV on my phone. Alexa orders the shopping. And we've still got no time. And at the end of, end of it all, we feel like we've run out of ourselves and we're empty. And now that's one kind of living on empty. And I want to talk about this topic of living on empty today from a really positive spin because I think there's a great way of, of approaching this topic because I think it's a really attractive way to live, actually. I'll get to that in just a minute. But for some of us, living on empty is attractive and scary. It's something that we long for. I've spoken to people again and again and, and they're looking forward to going on holiday. You say, what are you going to do? And they go, nothing. It's going to be great. What are you going to see? Nothing. Where are you going to go? Nowhere. Where have you booked to go? We've booked to an all-inclusive hotel uh, and you can get everything you want. Uh, are you, where are you going to go and see on this beautiful place? I don't care. Nothing. We're just going to sit in the hotel and eat and drink and go to bed. And that's all we're going to do. Nothing planned. And it's attractive to some. And yet, there are times in our lives when emptiness feels scary. When that sense of having nothing to do, we fill every moment with every day. We were out, Judith and I went out for a coffee yesterday. And uh, on the table behind us was a, an older couple. And constantly through their time together, the phones were out. No conversation. You're like, what are you doing? You can do that at home. Go out for a coffee and talk to each other. You don't have to sit on your phone. Unless you're looking something up together and chatting about it. But, but we, we, we fill every moment, don't we, with... I can't be without something to do. I've got to do something. I've got to look something up or play a game. or, or I've, I haven't heard from anybody for a minute. Maybe I better check my messages. And I wonder if they know I'm still... I, I put a post and, and I wonder if someone's liked it yet. And, and I've got to check in this whole insecurity around having nothing to do. And we have to fill every moment and put music on to fill the silence. Play games to fill the stillness. Check our messages to fill the loneliness. And search for something to give us identity when our roles change in life. Whether it's retirement or redundancy or parenthood or kids leaving or whatever it might be that's changing, we look for a new role because we feel empty. We're going to unpick all of that and put it in a really positive way as we look at the Easter story, which is the high point of the Christian story. You may have thought it was Christmas. That's important. You may have thought it was Good Friday. That's important. You may have thought it was Pentecost. That's important. But Easter Sunday is the key. 
I'm going to see today why it matters. Because I believe that Easter has the key for us in living on empty in a very different way from the way we may have thought. I'm going to read a Bible story from John's Gospel. And before we get there, the point we're reading from is where the disciples, Jesus' followers, have walked with him for three years, roughly. They've been following him about. They've been listening to him teaching. They've watched him heal the sick. They've taught themselves and preached and healed, and they've cast out demons. And they've, they've, they've set out on this course of following Jesus, and they've had such high hopes. Because over the years, they've begun to believe in who this man is. And they've believed even that he might be the Messiah. And now they've seen as he's been arrested. And they've heard that he's been put on trial. And they've heard again that he's been crucified. And he's died. And he's been buried. And his body's been put in a tomb. And their hope has gone. And their Savior is dead. The Messiah has gone missing. And and if you like, the vehicle of their faith, the car that their faith was representing, isn't just limping into a garage. It's dead on the side of the road. And the AA and the RAC can't resurrect it. It's the scrappies that are coming. And they're going to tow this kind of vehicle of faith away. That's the scene as we pick up this Sunday morning image in John's Gospel. It says this, early on Sunday morning while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and found that the stone had been rolled away from the entrance. She ran and found Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. She said, they've taken the Lord's body out of the tomb, and we don't know where they've put him. Now, now we approach this, if, if you're a Christian, we approach this today with great joy, because we approach it knowing the end of the story. We know that the tomb was empty because Jesus is alive, but Mary didn't know that, and she's arriving with spices that she's prepared to anoint Jesus' body. I better get on to Mary before I get carried away here. Uh, Mary's arrived, and she's gone ready. She's gone ready to the tomb. Her and some other women have gone there with spices to anoint Jesus' body, and the plan was to treat him as only an honored person would be treated, someone like a Herod or someone like that would have their body anointed with spices to stop the stench of decomposition taking hold so quickly. It was a sign of honor and love and respect, and that was the plan that Mary had for Jesus. Mary Magdalene. You may or may not know has a story. You may or may not know that Mary's life was a mess before she met Jesus. Spiritually a mess socially a mess. The Bible tells us that she was healed, cured of evil spirits. In Luke 8, it says, among them, this is a group of women, was Mary Magdalene, from whom Jesus had cast out seven demons. Now, what that looks like, we don't know for her particular story, because it's not told us. But her life was a mess. Imagine being bound up in that kind of spiritual confusion and that kind of mental confusion and that turmoil and uh, and, and life's just not ordinary. She's not socially accepted. And, uh, and she, she meets with Jesus and everything changes. This, this woman, Mary, is a part of a band of, of women who sort of go into early crowdfunding, if you like. Um, this is Luke chapter 8. Uh, and it says that uh, Jesus' ministry was supported by Mary and a few others who, the Bible says with, let me just check, 
Mary, Joanna, uh, and Susanna, and many other women who were contributing from their own resources to support Jesus and his disciples. As Jesus was doing the ministry, there was a group of women who were working and, and had business interests and who were funding the ministry of Jesus and his disciples. So they were supported by these women who, whose lives had been changed by Jesus. Incredible. Mary, like Mary Magdalene, like the disciples, had been with Jesus and she'd walked with him. Like the disciples, she'd heard Jesus teach. Like the disciples, she'd watched the miracles. But better than that, most of the disciples, she'd stayed at the foot of the cross and she'd watched the crucifixion. Better than all of the disciples, she'd watched as the body got placed into the tomb. And she'd watch from the opposite side as Jesus' body was prepared and placed in its allegedly final resting place. She'd been there and now on, early on this Sunday morning she'd come, better than most of the disciples, to anoint his body. And she'd arrived and expected the stone to be there. Expected to have to ask someone to roll it away so she could go and anoint the body and the, the tomb was open and the body was gone and she thought, after all the that Jesus had suffered, someone had moved the body and placed him with the other criminals where perhaps they thought he should have been. And she's crying. Because although she'd come full with the spices, she's desperately broken inside. And the Bible story goes on to tell us in, in John's Gospel that she, she goes into the tomb and she sees two angels there. And they have a conversation and the angels say, dear woman, why are you crying? And Mary just answers, because they've taken away my Lord and I don't know where they've put him. And she turns to leave. And she sees someone else standing there and it turns out to be Jesus. Now this is a remarkable little incident in itself. Every time in the, in the Bible when angels appear, there's a bit of shock and horror. And, kind of, oh! and the angels in the New Testament, their first line seems always to be, peace. I come in peace. Here, Mary, some of you will be like this. Mary is just so caught up in what she's going through and her emotion, her experience. She doesn't even realize what's going on. The angels say, oh, what's the matter? She says, well, they've, they've taken him away. I don't know where he is. And then she goes. Just, oh, by the way, there's two angels in the tomb. Oh, yeah, well, I'm looking for Jesus. She doesn't care because her priorities are elsewhere. She's set somewhere else. A couple of bits we we can observe from this for our own lives. That when we're filled with anxiety or we've got a strong agenda, we can miss what God's doing all around us. Even when Jesus calls out to her as it's on the screen, Mary misses initially that it's Jesus. He says, dear woman, why are you crying? And Mary says to him, thinking that he's the gardener, well, if you've taken him away, Jesus away, then tell me where you've put him and I'll go and get him. And it's not until Jesus says, Mary, that she turns and cries out, Rabboni, and she grabs hold of him. Some of us have been at times in our lives when we've been so full of anxiety that we've missed what God wants to do amongst us. We've missed the fact that God is right there in front of us. I want you to notice that Mary wasn't living on empty at this point. She was living full, full of anxiety, full of an agenda, full of a plan, full of spices, and when she met Jesus, none of that mattered anymore. The spices, who needs spices when you've got Jesus? She didn't get cross. You notice that? She didn't get cross with Jesus and say, do you know, I've spent all this money on these spices and here you are jolly well alive, aren't you? How dare you? 
ruin my plans. All yesterday I was up getting spiked. Some of you might have done that, mightn't you? Or your, or your mothers might. But no, the spices go on the ground or wherever she is with them and the anxiety goes and she goes away full. Really quickly on this one, Jesus appears to his disciples after this and there's one guy missing and it's Thomas. It's one of the disciples. Like Mary, he was with Jesus. He was actually one of his 12 disciples and he followed and taught and walked with Jesus. And he was missing that first day when Jesus appeared to the other disciples. That same day he appeared to Mary. And the Bible tells us that Thomas said to his others, the other guys, when he heard the news that they'd seen the Lord, Thomas said, well, I won't believe it unless I see the nail wounds in his hands and put my fingers into them and place my hands in the wound in his side. And it was eight days later when Jesus stood among them that Jesus then said, peace be with you. And invited Thomas to put his hands where, where Jesus' nail prints were. And Thomas just fell to his knees and said, my Lord and my God. I imagine Thomas has spent three years being wound up by Peter and some of the others. They're fishermen and tax collectors and all sorts of guys. They've had some fun, these guys. He's heard enough fishermen's tales, Thomas, to last a lifetime. Oh, you should have seen what we caught last night. Yeah, right, Peter. Okay. And here he is again. He missed out. And Peter and the others are saying, Thomas, you should have been there. And you can imagine Thomas, can't you? Yeah, right, lads. Okay. Jesus is alive. Well, I'm not going to believe it. Until, and they're convincing him and trying to convince him. And there's doubt. And Thomas arrives in this situation full of doubt. And Jesus appears. I want us to notice just a couple of things really quickly about this. That eight days had passed. I think it's significant that it's eight days. Because we look for patterns in God's work. And there often aren't patterns. So you can imagine that Mary's seen Jesus and the disciples have seen Jesus day one. So Thomas rightly could probably expect day two that Jesus would appear to him. Nothing. Day three, he's probably expecting that Jesus would appear. God likes threes, doesn't he? Nothing. Four, five, six, seven, seven days. It's going to be on the seventh day, isn't it? It's a Sunday. Jesus rose from the dead. Got it. God works in sevens. This is it. This is the pattern. Nothing. Silence. No Jesus. No appearance. It was eight days that passed. Isn't that interesting? Eight days. It's just possible that you've been waiting for God to do something in your life, and it seems as though everybody else has had it already, and you haven't. And it seems as though you're made to wait a little bit longer. Don't worry, God is still at work. Don't give up. Keep trusting him. I want us to see in this story that, Pete, uh, that Thomas came full, not empty, he came full of doubt. And when he met with Jesus, that doubt disappeared. Thirdly, Peter. The Bible goes on to tell us that Peter, one of the other disciples, met with Jesus on a beach. And he was with the others in a boat and Jesus appeared and, and he leapt out of the boat and went through the water and got to the shore. And they, he had a conversation with Jesus, but he also had a private conversation with Jesus at that point, walking along the beach. This is in John 21. And this is really significant because before Jesus died, Peter had denied Jesus, his Lord and Master, three times. He said three times, 
I don't know who Jesus is when he'd been asked. And three, on those three occasions, he had an opportunity to say, yes, I'm a follower of Jesus. And every time he said, no, I don't know who you mean. And Jesus had predicted this. And the last time Peter had properly locked eyes with Jesus, I imagine him locking eyes with Jesus when he denied him three times. And then he goes away in shame. And he's not at the cross. And he's not at the empty tomb initially. He's hiding away with his own shame. How could I have done that? How could I have denied him three times? And you know what it's like when you've messed up. You kind of hope that it never crops up again. But you're also kind of hoping that it does and you can put things right again. And I imagine Peter in those, that first time that Jesus appears to the 12 or the 11 because Thomas isn't there, 10 because Judas isn't there and Thomas isn't there. That, that Peter's kind of, is he going to look me in the eye? Is he going to, he, he caught my eye and didn't say anything. Maybe we're okay. But, but what about those three times? And then when Thomas is there and Jesus appears again, and you can imagine Peter again looking Jesus in the eye and wondering if Jesus is going to bring this thing up, the three denials, because he knows about it, what's going to happen. And then Jesus takes Simon on a little walk and three times asks him a simple question, Simon, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And gives Peter three opportunities to affirm his love for him when three times he denied him. And he, he restores. And so as Peter comes to this, this meeting point with Jesus full, not empty, full of remorse. And he meets with Jesus and he goes away without that remorse anymore. Because Jesus heals him. And restores him. It may be today that like Mary you carry fear and anxiety. Or like Thomas you carry doubt. Or like Peter, you carry remorse. My good news for you today is you can live empty of those things because of what Jesus has done today. As we meet with Jesus, you can live empty of those things and you can find him taking those away. As you meet with him, you can find him taking your anxiety away and your doubt away and your remorse away because he's able to make a difference in our lives today. He really is. And if you'd like that, We'd love to pray with you. If you'd like to say, I need that. I need to be free of my anxiety and free of my doubt and free of my remorse. We'd love to pray. In fact, I'm going to pray now. Would you close your eyes for me? I've got a couple more things to say. Would you just close your eyes? If there's somebody in this room today who knows that you need your anxiety taking away or your doubt taking away or your remorse taking away and you want to come to Jesus, would you put up a hand? I just want to pray for you. Nobody else is looking. Thank you. Just, we're just going to pray. God knows you. Okay, there's quite a few hands going up. That's great. Just, you're welcome to put your hand up and keep it just there, just as you trust God. God, we thank you that you love us. Lord Jesus, we thank you that when we come full of our stuff, you're not worried about it. You're not as concerned as we are, and you take efforts to meet with us. I thank you, Lord, that you weren't put off by Thomas's doubt. You met him personally and tackled it head on. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you weren't offended by Peter's uh, guilt or, or having uh, rejected you, 
but instead you took him on a private journey, one which didn't shame him, and dealt with him privately to say that it would be okay because you were forgiving him. And Lord, with Mary, when she was anxious, I thank you, Lord, that you met with her and called her by name and met with her in, anxi- in her anxiety. And I pray, Lord, for each of those people who put their hands up today, that before the end of today, they would find that a great exchange taking place as anxiety that they're full of gets passed to you and left that doubt that people may be full of gets left with you. And remorse that people may be full of gets dealt with by you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Do put your hands down, please. Quickly, each of those three that we spoke of, Mary and Thomas and Peter, all go away from that encounter with Jesus with a fresh commission. For Mary, she's told, go and find my brothers and tell them. Peter, uh, Thomas is told, as the Father sent me, so I send you. That's to all the disciples. And then he specifically says this to Thomas. You believe because you sent me. Blessed are those who believe without seeing me. And then to Peter, he says, take care of my sheep. I just want to say this, that when we come to the risen Christ, it's not just about us. When we come with our stuff and we find that we can live empty of it, freed from it, he recommissions us to live for him. And that's an exciting part of living as a Christian. The empty tomb redefines our purpose it's not about me it's for everybody else finally let me finish with this i actually want to talk about this thing of living on empty we love symbols symbolism they're really helpful if you're doing maths um, at school you remember it uh, then mathematic symbols symbols are very helpful because they can convey lots of information in a small uh, amount of space for, for most of us symbols are very helpful we we uh, use kind of icons all the time on our phone to navigate between different apps and things like that. And you, you can find your way around the device by using the symbols. They become recognizable to us and, and perhaps important. As Christians, we, we look at the cross as a powerful symbol. We have a cross on our wall, which is probably, I suspect, the most identifiable symbol of the Christian faith around the world. It speaks of sacrifice and it's emotive. It features in art and songs. It's a powerful symbol. It speaks of our debt paid forgiveness won and we rightly preach on the cross and we rightly sing songs which reference the cross yet without the empty tomb that is meaningless it's two planks of wood nailed to a wall and it has absolutely no meaning if we don't also emphasize the empty tomb paul writes this, if Christ had not been raised, then your faith is useless and you are still guilty of your sins. If you said to most Christians, where was your sin dealt with? It's all on the cross. It's all about the cross. And yet Paul's writing, if Christ hasn't been raised, your faith is useless and you're still guilty of those same sins. It's part of this package of death and resurrection into new life. We only live as Christians because of the empty tomb. We live because of emptiness. We live not because we're full of ourselves or full of our own bright ideas, but we live because the tomb is empty. In early Christian art, the early Christians used symbols for their faith themselves. They used the symbol of a fish to represent Christ. Greek word fish Initial letters of each word, Jesus Christ, God's Son, Savior, if you, if you write it out. So they use that as a symbol. They use the symbol of the dove to represent the Holy Spirit. They use the symbol of the ship 
or the anchor, but the one symbol they didn't use was of the cross for hundreds of years. No Christian symbols of the cross. They did start drawing pictures of the empty tomb before they started drawing pictures of a cross. If you go back in early Christian art, no cross symbols. Maybe it's because they rightly got their teaching packaged around the truth of the resurrection. That the resurrection was actually the fundamental thing that brought them into resurrection life. Living on the power of empty. Living on the empty tomb. Living on the life that, that only God could bring because Jesus was now risen from the dead and death was defeated and life had come. Maybe it was because they'd seen lots of people die on crosses. Nothing special about that. There's only one person who got out of the tomb. We are called to live as those who live on empty. By that I mean we live as those who are born again because Jesus has raised Christ from the dead. We live with great expectation. We have a priceless inheritance. We live as those on whom death has no hold and holds no terror. We can now live as those who cannot die, who will live eternally. Live with hope and peace with God and with others. The empty tomb is a foundation for a full life. Some people today live as if Jesus never existed. Others live as if he's still dead. I believe we're called to live because he is alive today. That's why Easter matters. It's why life will never be the same again because Jesus rose. Over the next five weeks, we're going to be looking uh, at a series of things which flow from this thought of living on empty. What it means to us as a church and as followers of Jesus to some of the five big things that, that are important to us that flow from this whole thing about how we live on empty. It's time to celebrate. We're going to sing again in a minute, I think. Is that right, Rob? Will the band come up? It's time to celebrate. It's time to give thanks. It's time to live in the fullness of the resurrection. Andy encouraged us earlier to look at somebody else and encourage them. I wish them a happy Easter sort of thing. I just want to encourage you today to give courage that because the tomb is empty, you need fear nothing, no death. You do not need to fear death because you can live forever with Christ. Because the tomb is empty, we can grab hold of the life that Jesus is offering and live for him. Because the tomb is empty, there's hope. Because the tomb is empty, we have new life in Jesus Christ. Isn't that exciting? Grab hold of it today. Let's live on the basis of an empty tomb. Nobody got put back in it. It's still empty today. Jesus is still risen and he's still alive. Amen.